In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to begin our discussion of the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes. In the 1960s, a lot of things in the world were changing. This document really gives us the best sense of how the church understood and reacted to all of the sweeping developments of the 1960s. Stick around. It's a good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And in this episode, we're going to be diving in to the longest document from the Second Vatican Council, uh, which is Gaudium et Spes, or the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the modern world. Um, so in this one, you have a choice between uh, a Latin title, Gaudium et Spes, which, you know, w- what does that mean? Or this super long pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Um, and so it's like a tricky one to decide, which is better to call it? Do I stick with the Latin or do I go with this super long term? Uh, but it, there is something important about it being a pastoral constitution. Uh the documents give different labels to to um, to them to themselves. So, in the Sacrosanctum Concilium, the first document from the Second Vatican Council, for instance, um, it is just labeled as a constitution. Lumen Gentium is labeled as a dogmatic constitution. Gaudium et Spes, the one that we're going to be starting today, uh, is a pastoral constitution. And I have been working um, throughout this whole series. I'm reading the the primary source, obviously the documents themselves, and then some commentaries here and there as I'm able to. I don't always have time to read as much as I want. Uh, But in this Vatican II collection from uh, Word on Fire from Bishop Barron, um, there's a really good discussion, just brief, one page, about what does it mean to call this document a pastoral constitution. And one of his or his basic uh, critique or, or comment is, it means that this document needs to be read in light of all of the other documents of the Council, and we need to remember that while it is indeed concerned with what's the role of the Church in modernity and the modern world, now the modern world, when the Council happened in the 1960s, what is its role then? Um, it, that doesn't mean that it's just completely suggestions uh, and that there's no sort of doctrinal foundation. So the way Bishop Barron describes it, and I, and I really like the, his, his description, is that this text, Gaudium et Spes, is a super long document, it's concerned with the Church in the modern world. How does the Church relate to the modern world? Uh, what's the dialogue between the Church and the modern world? But there are doctrinal principles which are the foundation of that dialogue. So it is grounded in doctrine. It is grounded in dogma, but it's it's written with a, a perspective of, like, what can the Church say to the world now? What does the world need to hear, and how can we propose the gospel maybe uh, in, in a fresh way that speaks to 
Not differences in dogma or doctrine, but differences in the condition of humanity at the time that the text, that the text was written. Um, so just a few comments here um, from myself, just personally, having you know worked through, through this text and, and the others of, of the council. Um, Gaudium et Spes, I think, maybe in the, it's the most clear in this way that it reveals the limited kind of historical context of the council. And I don't mean limited to sort of denigrate it, uh, but the fact that it was written at a very particular time, right? This document, Gaudium et Spes, was issued in 1965, and it really gives you a very, very good example of the Second Vatican Council kind of reflecting um, the sort of the spirit of the times in that there's a lot of confidence, a lot of hope in human developments in political um, ways and in, in, in terms of economic and, and science. Um, but I think that it's a misreading of this text to see Gaudium et Spes as simply the church accepting the status quo of the 60s and saying, we've got to get with those times. There is a discussion about the times, about the signs of the times, um, and there is this optimism but I think it's important to remember that that optimism that you definitely see running through this document is always tied with concerns about sin and in a special way about concupiscence. Um, so there is some grounding. Uh, there, there's a great tension, though, in this document. The, the, the fathers of the council want to recognize some of the achievements and advancements of modern men and women, but there's always a, realiz a realization that our own achievements, whatever they are, can harm us if we don't see where God fits into the picture. So if we're not acknowledging God's role in, for instance, uh, the improvements that, that the world was going through in the 1960s, we are putting ourselves in a pretty dangerous position. So you will hear sometimes critics of Vatican II say, you know, it was, it was way too positive, there was way too much just sort of assumptions that everything was going to be great now that we finally, mankind has arrived in the 60s, and look what happened, you know, just a few years later, there was a lot of revolutions, a lot of changes. Um, that's maybe more present in this document than any, than any of the other major ones from the council, but it is sort of tampered down a little bit by this, this discussion of uh, concupiscence and and of sin. Um, I want to read just the opening line because it gives us it kind of captures this the overall orientation of the document. So this is uh, the the opening line of Gaudium et Spes: the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted. These are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts, for theirs is a community composed of men. United in Christ, they are led by the Holy Spirit in their journey to the kingdom of their Father, and they have welcomed the news of salvation, which is meant for every man. That is why this community realizes that it is truly linked with mankind and its history by the deepest of bonds. Um, so you can get sort of a little bit of a flavor of that kind of that, that optimism, that I mean, it, it, it does reflect the 1960s. Um, at the same time, though, there's all throughout the document, all these realizations that if we don't turn to God, if we don't recognize Christ as the true lens, for, in, for instance, in which we can understand what it means to be a human being, then everything else that's happening, even if it's good, is falling short of what we are all called to. Let me give you a sense of the structure of this document. Uh, because as I said, it is the largest, the longest document um, of the council. 
Um, so it starts with a preface. So it's just three paragraphs long, kind of laying out what are we talking about here in this document. Then there's an introductory statement, which kind of hammers out a couple of specific ideas that are going to be addressed a little bit more within the within the scope of the actual text itself. That gets us from paragraph 4 to 12. So you get 12 paragraphs technically before the document's even really started. And then the real structure is that there's two parts to Gaudium et Spes. There's part one, part two. Part one is called the church and man's calling. And in part one, there's several different chapters that are really kind of giving us doctrinal principles, theological principles, um, to understand the role of the church in the modern world. Um, but they're not new principles, rather they're just ones that are really important for assessing the situation that the church and the world was in in 1965. Um, so there's a chapter on the dignity of the human person, uh, there's a chapter on the community of mankind, another chapter on uh, the third chapter is on man's activity throughout the world, and then a final chapter in part one on the role of the church in the modern world, um, which, you know, if you, if you look at the English title of the document, it's uh, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. you got to get all the way to the end of the first part before you even have a chapter of, of the document kind of given that title. Uh, but it, it, it is really, it does capture a lot of what the document is about. So that's part one. These are sort of a little bit more doctrinal principles. And then part two, uh, which we'll talk about um, separately, uh, is titled Some Problems of Special Urgency. So this first discussion that we'll have on Gaudium et Spes here is going to really focus on uh, these, these four chapters along with the sort of introductory material on uh, principles um, for us to understand the role of the church in the modern world. And it opens um, in the introductory statement, uh, starting in paragraph 4. You get the first use, I think it's the first use in the Council, of this phrase, the signs of the times. So the Council Fathers uh, argue that the church has to scrutinize the signs of the times. Um, and I, and I want to read just briefly where, where you see this laid out, uh, because this is probably... That, that phrase, signs of the times, is probably one of the most well-known phrases from the council, um, and it comes from the fourth paragraph. So this is what the church, uh, what the document says. So it's just explained in large part what it's trying to do, and then it says, to carry out such a task, the church has always had the duty of scrutinizing the signs of the times. And notice this, it, right after it says we got to scrutinize the signs of the times, it says, and interpreting them in the light of the gospel. I think there is a lot more potential for Gaudium et Spes as a document to be sort of used as a foundation for talking about the spirit of the council. Um, what's what's the, the, the animating principle of Gaudium et Spes? That's what we got to run with. The signs of the times, progress, mankind, development, economics, politics, all that stuff. That's all in the document, but notice right in paragraph 4, very early on, the church has to scrutinize the signs of the times. How do we scrutinize them? In the light of the gospel. It's really easy to blow straight past the in the light of the gospel and just look at Gaudium et Spes as though it's sort of like a New York Times super long article on what's happening in the world. And that's really a terrible way to read this document. Um, so in sort of laying out uh, some of the signs of the time, 
this this opening section of the document talks about so many really key ideas. Um, I just kind of want to run through them. One of them is the rise of science and technology. Um, and, and it mentions in particular mastering outer space. Um, and you got to kind of take a step back and, you know, we don't maybe we don't think about this as much, but in the 1950s and 60s, you know, as the as the space programs in in U.S. and 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 the USSR and maybe other places, I'm not sure. I know Russia and America were involved in the space race. Human beings were accomplishing something absolutely extraordinary. Just 50, 60 years prior to that, it was science fiction to talk about, you know, going in a spaceship. And there, were, there, weren't, there wasn't such a thing as a spaceship. But that's actually, people are seeing them now. And there's, there's sort of this attitude that if we can do that, if we can, you know, fly a spaceship around the earth, we can do anything. It's a godlike kind of thing in the 60s to be able to do that. So the council mentions this rise of science, and in particular, the, the idea of mastering outer space as one of the challenges facing the world because it can give us this false sense of power. And the council wants to say science and progress and technology is fine, but we have to remember who's the creator, and that it's not us. We don't have unlimited power. We can't do anything. Even if we can do it, that doesn't mean that we should. Um, there's also um, a big recognition, it's the 60s, of the way society is changing. So there's this move from classicism, which sees everything as sort of fixed and repeating patterns, to a historicism or an evolution where just the world is changing profoundly. And that's certainly was true in the 60s, and it's continued um, that the you know, things are not always stable. And that lack of stability in social sphere and economics, politics, everything, really was a big deal in the 60s. It continues to be, but it, it's really sort of brand new at the Second Vatican Council. Okay, there's discussion about urbanization, moving from the country to the city, about migration. Something that really caught my eye in this read of the document was this idea about the rise of people who aren't practicing religion. I mentioned in earlier episodes the Second Vatican Council was not called because there were no problems in the church. One of the problems recognized in all the documents is a greater need for evangelization. Here's one of the clearest statements on it. So this is paragraph 7. Unlike former days, the denial of God or of religion or the abandonment of them are no longer unusual and individual occurrences. For today, it is not rare for such things to be presented as requirements of scientific progress or of a certain new humanism. Humanism is a big concept for Gaudium et Spes, the idea that the world is becoming more human, the idea that people are becoming more aware of their dignity, that because they have more technical prowess and power, they're able to better serve the needs of mankind. And the Church says that's fine, that's good, citizens of the gospel or, or, you know, disciples of the gospel ought to be concerned with human needs. But when it is a mere humanism and it does not bring in this plenitude of, of divinity and transcendence, then we're in dangerous territory for a lot of reasons, one of which is false hope, another is just sort of this, this delusions of grandeur, what, how much we can accomplish. Uh, another sort of general problem that the, that the Council lays out in the beginning of this document is the rise of increasing specialisms, focusing narrowly, 
you know, uh, special training on a, a small part of reality, but without a coherent view of the whole. That is a really important change um, that you didn't. You could become an expert in just a very small thing without having sort of a, a broader grounding in your in your training um, and in your education. Um, one more I'll mention. There's there's actually a few more, but I, I don't want I don't have time to go through all of them. This increasing power for liberation that at the same time is releasing new forms of slavery and destruction. This is a grand theme for Gaudium et Spes, that the world is finally at a place where man's scientific abilities could change and could improve almost anything. And because of that power, we're finding actually just the power to do things doesn't always fix everything. Um, sometimes technology, progress, science can unleash new forms of slavery or even new forms of destruction. So the, the, the end result is that the world in 1965, as the church understands it, is primed to do a lot of good. But right there behind it is this prospect of maybe things aren't going to work if we don't remember some of our foundational principles. So what does the document do? It moves into a discussion of the dignity of the human person. So the idea that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God is really critical for Gaudium et Spes and for the Second Vatican Council to kind of be our home base for everything. We are creatures. We're not the creator. When we remember that, we can then use our power and progress and science and technology in the proper way. We can also kind of um, embrace the changes in human society without destroying everything and saying nothing that came before this matters. We can, in other words, recognize the good things that we can accept and that do need to change and preserve those things that should, you know, be um, traditions that are worth keeping. Um, but when we forget that we're creatures and we think we're the creator, kind of that that really goes out the window. And it, another related thing is, if we are created in God's image and likeness, that means we're created for community and for communion. And that also shapes the use of power and technology. If we're individuals who don't have responsibility or um, solidarity with other people, and it's just kind of all about me— well, that changes the way we make decisions about everything. But if we remember we're creatures and we're called to communion, then this can kind of give some direction to all of the developments that are swirling around in the 60s. Um, caught in with that idea of creation, of being creatures, is the presence of sin and temptation. The Council says man is split within himself and all of human life must be seen as a dramatic struggle between good and evil. And I love this line. It says that there is a call to grandeur that we should embrace, but we also have the reality of human life includes the depths of misery. Grandeur and misery at the same time, because we have this great possibility this great calling as sons of God, but we also have sin within ourselves. So this colors epistemology, how we know things. There's a big—I um, yeah, keep saying big. I don't know how else to describe it. There is a significant movement you know, in the 60s to, to recognize that 
we're more educated now. Education, pe- more people have access to education. People are able to study. Um, science is accomplishing all these things. There's a temptation to think we're smarter. And maybe in some ways we are. But knowledge and intelligence is not the same as wisdom. So the Council discusses the idea that our era needs wisdom more than any other age if all of our discoveries and progresses are to be truly human. Um, And then there's also this note that some poorer nations um, who are poorer in economic goods are quite rich in wisdom and can offer advantages to others. And this, again, goes back to the idea of being created and having communion and community um, with other human beings. There's a, a lot of discussion about conscience, freedom, uh, the problem of death, um, all of these big questions. One of the, certainly the big, th- the, one of the key themes in Gaudium et Spes is these big questions, like what is, what is man, what is mankind, what is the world for, what is the purpose of everything, why do we have suffering? These kind of questions, the document will go again and again say, those questions are not eliminated by the, tri- the triumph and progress in science and technology that, that we are seeing um, in the context of, you know, the 1960s and, and, and the council. Something that I don't even remember being in this document um, as I was working my way through and preparing for, for this recording, what just completely blew me away uh, is the teaching on atheism, uh, which you see in paragraphs 18 to 21. And this is still kind of laying out the big picture, like, What's what are what are the the, the primary concerns and, and there's a concern for atheism. There's a lot of discussion about atheism. I want to read just one particular line uh, about the the causes of atheism uh, because it really just completely blew me away. So there's this discussion about you know evil and and, and death and all these things that can make it easier for people to question God's existence. But listen to this line. All right. Undeniably, those who willfully shut out God from their hearts and try to dodge religious questions are not following the dictates of their conscience, and hence they are not free to blame. Here's the part. How yet, believers themselves frequently bear some responsibility for this situation. For taken as a whole, atheism is not a spontaneous development, but stems from a variety of causes, including critical reaction against religious beliefs, and in some places against the Christian religion in particular. Hence, believers can have more than a little to do with the birth of atheism to the extent that they neglect their own training in the faith, that's one problem, or teach erroneous doctrine, that's a second, or are deficient in their religious life, a third, their moral life, a fourth, or their social life, a fifth, they must said to conceal rather than reveal the authentic face of God and religion. I thought that was just absolutely fascinating that, again, in the 60s, there's a lot of discussion in this document about atheism, that there's different kinds of atheism, different grades or levels. Sometimes it's you know, motivated by philosophical beliefs. Sometimes it's sort of a scientism that that removes God from the equation and says, in order to really do science, you've got to take God out of the picture. Sometimes atheism is more politically or socially motivated. Maybe it's more of a Marxist kind of atheism. Um, And that believers have a role in causing atheism. 
as well as in answering it by being witnesses. Um, And at the same time, the council recognizes that even in the face of this growing movement of atheism, which was certainly a new phenomenon, there's limits. Listen to this. Meanwhile, it's talking still about atheists. Every man remains to himself an unsolved puzzle, however obscurely he may perceive it. For on certain occasions, no one can entirely escape the kind of questioning mentioned earlier, especially when life's major events take place. To this questioning, and these are the big questions, John Paul II called them the big questions. To this questioning, only God fully and most certainly provides an answer as he summons man to higher knowledge and humbler probing. And then it goes on to say that, you know, the remedy for atheism has to be a proper presentation of the church's teachings and that this can be achieved mostly by witnesses of living and mature faith. So just as, you know, people teaching false doctrine or living uh, morally or socially sort of bereft lives can drive people to atheism, so too a proper evangelization can help to lead them out of it. Um, So that discussion about atheism, to me, is one of the the clearest um, examples of where we can point someone and say, okay, you've heard Gaudium et Spes is just this hurrah, everything in the 60s is great. Go read about its teaching on atheism, how real that is, how tragic it is, um, and how important it is to lead people out of that. It's not, it's not all just a, a sort of a, a parade of everything happening in the 60s was great, here's why. It, there's, it's, it's much more attenuated. Now, the ultimate answer to this question of, of atheism and, and the big questions, the problems of suffering and death is, is going to have to be Christ, right? And so Gaudium et Spes, uh, paragraph 22, is one of the critical pieces of the entire Second Vatican Council. It's a line that John Paul II um, quoted a lot frequently in his in his papacy and his pontificate. Um, so this is sort of the response to all of all of this this stuff that's been brought up in chapter one, that's concerning human dignity and problems with it. The truth is that only in the mystery of the of the incarnate Word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. So Christocentric reality is the way to kind of ground everything going on in Gaudium et Spes. Christ is the one that makes our... Uh, that, that makes it clear who we are as human beings and what our supreme calling is. Remember, the Council just, just a few paragraphs ago mentioned that we are called to, the, to uh, grandeur, but we also experience misery. That grandeur is really the truth of what we're created for, um, and we have to sort of keep our eyes on Christ in order to see that. Now, all of that that we've just kind of gone over is the first chapter of the document, Right. Um, and I mean, you know, in this printing that I'm that I'm holding in front of me, the the uh, Bishop Barron one, that's twenty odd pages be- before you get through the first chapter. But the emphasis on that first chapter is human dignity. Okay, human dignity is the foundation um, for the church's interaction with the modern world. Chapter two talks about sort of the global community of mankind, and. This is really uh, a section of the document 
that highlights the, the different kinds of changes happening in the 1960s and emphasizes in particular the way it changed relationships between human beings. Um, and it's really tied into that idea that we're created for communion. As I said earlier, the theological principle of being created, so we're creatures, we're not the creator, and because we're made in the image and likeness of God, it means we're called for com- called f- into communion with others. That communion with others, the Church is trying to highlight here in the second chapter, that we can rejoice in some of the ways that the world has changed because it makes our call to communion clearer, and we can more properly serve mankind by remembering that we're called to communion. So what does that look like? Another line, another favorite of John Paul II's, Gaudium et Spes 24. So the likeness, this likeness that we have with God reveals that man, who is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. Okay, so this means we don't know what it is to be a human being, and we can't discover it until we first, paragraph 22, we see our foundation in Christ, our relationship to Christ, and paragraph 24, we make an authentic gift of ourselves. It is in giving of ourselves, in other words, the document is trying to say, that we can serve that communion of mankind that this chapter is all about. So there's discussion throughout this document, uh, throughout this chapter, on socialization, the way that society is changing, um, an increasing closeness. Um, the world is, is you know, the, the size of the world's not changing, but we can become closer to people because of technology, because of communications, um, and we get an increasing sense of our importance, but it, it comes with risks. So the, the council says socialization is great, but it also can't be denied that sometimes men are diverted from doing good. Uh, and, and that often has to do with what the, what the text of the document calls structures of sin. Um, and it seems to be that the council is saying this, just merely participating in the world more, which everybody was sort of kind of feeling this movement to be more involved in the world, to, to change the world. It, like, being involved is good, but depending on where you are, uh, you know, you, you may not have the best opportunities to really truly pursue human goodness. So there's, um, to kind of clarify, like, what should we be doing? The council talks, moves on from structures of sin to talk about what is the common good, the common good that serves everyone. Um, so it says the common good is the sum of those conditions of social, social life, which allow social groups and their individual members relatively thorough and ready access to their own fulfillment. And this says this takes on an increasingly universal complexion and consequently re- involves rights and duties. So this, this document is so rich. It starts in that first chapter, which we talked about with human dignity. Here's the foundation of everything. Then it goes to talk about the way that human dignity is, is worked out interpersonally between people, between nations. We have that foundation of human dignity. So how do we get along in this communion that we're all called to? One uh, real key is the common good. And another, to recognize the common good, is basically human rights. Um, so there's a discussion, a sort of a listing of basic rights that, that everybody should uphold and the society should uphold, but also Christians should work toward. 
Uh, and then there's, you know, contrasting with that offenses against human dignity that the church has to stand against. Um, so it, it's interesting uh, because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the United Nations was published in 1948, and one of the key contributors to that uh, document was actually Jacques Maritain, um, who was an important philo- uh, philosopher and theologian um, who was close friends, for instance, with um, Paul VI. Uh, and you can see some of this influence um, in this section of the document talking about human rights and their link to human dignity. Human rights don't come out of nowhere, and they don't come by, they don't come from governments. They're given to us as gifts of our creation. So uh, it, it calls us to uphold the basic rights and to stand against offenses to any of the sort of common human rights um, that, that the church was, you know, of course, happy to, to support and recognize. Um, and there's an interesting line that when we are dealing with offenses against human life, so murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, willful self-destruction, uh, whatever violates the integrity of the human person, I mean, it's, a, it's a long list, uh, subhuman living conditions, arbitrary imprisonment, all these things. These are all terrible, and it says they're offenses against human dignity. Then it says, these poison human society, but they do more harm to those who practice them than those who suffer the injury. And I think that's a really good way to, again, sort of be cast back into the theological vision of the document. What's happening in human society, whether it's good or, or terribly bad, ultimately has to be seen in light of our divine destiny, our eternal destiny, eternal life. So these offenses against human rights are bad, but they're worse for the people who commit them than who suffer them. And why is that? It's because there's a divine judgment. Um, so, so there's this kind of interesting back and forth. Um, the document goes on here in this chapter to talk about sort of different individual ways that um, we need to serve the community of mankind, talks about education. There's an interesting discussion about excessive individualism um, that, that sort of says, if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you get to just sort of step back from all the problems in the world and live just for yourself. You've got to actually be involved in that. So there's this little brief line there are those who, while possessing grand and rather noble sentiments, nevertheless in reality live always as if they cared for nothing of the needs of society. Uh, and, and I thought that that's, a, that's an interesting remark. So there's some, some, some lines here that maybe we don't hear um, a lot in sort of popular discussions of these documents. And, and I think one just important thing that you can see with Gaudium et Spes maybe better than with the other documents is that they're really complex, and they're trying to do a lot of things all at once. And to paint Vatican II as a whole or any particular document with one just simple description really doesn't do justice to sort of the complexity of the arguments um, and, and the complexity of the, the theological vision that's underlying uh, the entire text. So, all right, again, so much going on, we can't say all of it. I'm going to look now at the third chapter, Man's Activity in the World, and this is primarily a reflection on the increase in technological capacity and the dangers that kind of are, are associated with that. Um, first, the church says it's fine for mankind to have more science, more technological prowess, more power. Those are good. Those are all good things because God has given us our, our intellect 
And he's given us dominion over the world, but that dominion has to keep in mind the fact that it's it's truly not ours. We're stewards of a reality. We're stewards of the world. So God's rules still apply. Um, so it, it, it winds up saying, the, the council winds up saying this, the norm, the, the rule for human activity is that it needs to be, all human activity needs to be in accord with the divine plan, the divine will. And it needs to harmonize with the genuine good of the human race. And here's this really important line. It needs to allow men as individuals and as members of, of a society to, pers- to pursue their total vocation and to fulfill it. He uses this language of the total vocation. John Paul II in Evangelium Vitae kind of reflects on this and says that we have to make sure that mankind is not somehow enclosed in a narrow horizon of physical nature or reduced to being a thing and then no longer grasp the transcendent character of our existence. So in the 60s, with all of the things changing, all of the increase in science and technology and power, it was a little bit easier to sort of think of mankind as we're just technical, we have technical prowess, we have power, we can do whatever we want, and to forget about the fact that we're created in God's image and likeness and that there's something beyond the physical world. And the church is trying to, to, to really put emphasis on the fact that that is a dangerous place to be. Um, when we are operating purely in materialistic ways and we're ignoring the total vocation of man, so the, the human dimension, the human development is important. So is the transcendent. So is the spiritual. Uh, we have got to keep both of those things active. And when we pull God out of the equation, I love this line, it says, when God is forgotten, the creature itself be- grows unintelligible. If we take God out of our perspective of what it means to be at work in the world, we're really setting ourselves up for danger. The next paragraph, so this is paragraph 37, says that the magnified power of humanity threatens to destroy the race itself. When human power is separated from its origin in God, truly anything becomes possible, and then you are in a real place of danger. And it should be, you know, emphasized, this is 1965, right? There is a lot of sort of optimism floating around in the culture, but it's also just 20 years since World War II. The world remembers, you know, the the dangers of unchecked human power um, and what science and technology can accomplish when they're removed from a moral foundation. The church here is trying to sort of hint at that again, that the new power that we have is great when we keep its divine sort of origin in place. Um, so there is there is a balance between the optimism of everything's great in the 60s, and, you know, we're going to completely destroy ourselves. So the church says uh, we should be warned that, while we are warned that it profits a man nothing if he gains the whole world and loses himself, The expectation of a new earth must not weaken, but rather stimulate our concern for cultivating this one, namely this world. Um, So removal, as as I said earlier, just saying like, oh, there's too many problems, there's too much danger, I'm just going to kind of skip out on the whole thing, 
not really what it's called for. So finally, we come to, I know this episode's gone along, but it's a, it's a rich document, the role of the church in the modern world. Essentially, in this, this closing lines of just the first part of the document, what the church lays into is, is really just one thing. And so I'll just kind of wrap things up with this sort of pithy statement. It's the church, by virtue of the gospel committed to her, proclaims the rights of man. She acknowledges and greatly esteems the dynamic movements of today by which these rights are everywhere fostered. Yet these movements, and you can think of the human rights movement, political changes, the increased democratization of the West, educational access, you know, different perspectives on things like women working or all sorts of stuff is changing. These movements must be penetrated by the spirit of the gospel and protected against any kind of false autonomy. So the true source of reference for whether or not the world is becoming a better place is not, you know, the GDP, is not, um, you know, the average salary of, of the human family. Rather, it is how is the gospel being lived out? And how does the gospel help us to judge all of those other realities? politics, media, culture, everything. Um, and so the, the, the church then is going to say uh, that our role in the modern world is essentially to speak the gospel in a way that is more intelligible. I'm not going to read it uh, just because it's long, but paragraph 44 sort of lays out this principle of the new evangelization, that the world needs to hear the gospel, but men are different society has changed, the world has changed. So we have to find experts among the laity who know how to speak to the world now and teach the world again the timeless truths of the gospel. So we'll just I'll just close up by saying this document, as I've said a couple of times already, is easy to look at as an example of just sort of the everything's great, the 60s is awesome, and the church is just going to wet itself to the signs of the times. This, you know, somewhat lengthy discussion, I hope has convinced you that it's not that simple, and that above all the church wants to say, it is the gospel that the world needs now. What's the role of the church in the modern world? It's the same that the, of the, as the role of the church in the early period of, the, of, of, of its existence, and that is to bring the gospel to people, because all people need it. Thanks. <laughs>